tremendous to see you in this first Sunday of 2024. We're going to do what, for me, is just an enormous privilege and blessing by God's providence, which is today we're going to study God's self-revelation of his glory to Moses, which became a paradigm creation in Scripture and became foundational text for how we know God. So this is a good way to start 2024. Amen? Open up to Exodus chapter 33. While you're turning, if you don't have a Bible, please tell somebody who's a friend here or who you know here. If you don't know anybody, then grab anybody uh, because that's as good as anything and tell them you want a Bible and we'll give you one for free. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or you don't know if you're saved, we're very glad that you're here because part of our, uh, uh, the, the chief part of our mission as the church, as a church, is to see human beings lost in sin, reconciled back to God through their recognition of Jesus Christ and his good news in the gospel. So we're very glad that you're here. Now, Exodus chapter 33, last week, uh, our consideration has been because we've been walking through this book. And at this point, God has saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He has spared them many times in the desert. He has taken them to Mount Sinai where he showed them his law and entered into a blood-packed covenant with them where he promised that on a national scale they will belong to him if they carefully keep his laws. Now, by the time the, 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 the moon has changed cycle, God finds his people worshipping an idol and breaking and shattering that covenant with God. So that now, as far as it stands now, God's covenant in between chapter 32 and chapter 34, when God reconstitutes that covenant, we'll look at that uh, at the end of the month. In this period of two chapters, the covenant is in tatters. There is no covenant relationship between the Israelites and God except for the promises that God had made to Abraham. They still hang in the air, but they no longer have connection to this generation of people because they severed that connection in their idolatry. But Moses has gone before God and has prayed for the people. Moses has gone before God and in answer to his prayers, God has promised he will again recommit in covenant. God is before uh, uh, Moses up on the top of Mount Sinai now in sort of a mystical cloud. And this is what Moses says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. This became the best day in Moses' life. This became an extraordinary, intense, intimate moment between God and Moses. Verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Chapter 34. Yahweh said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first two. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the, mount, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut the, sto- the tablets of stone like the first time. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord Descended. I love that. No matter how high Moses climbs, God always has to stoop down low to see. Moses goes all the way to the top of the mountain and God descends from heaven in his majesty. The Lord descended and stood with him there in a cloud and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go with us in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. May God bless the reading of his inerrant, powerful, preserved perfect word in our midst this morning. Amen. Amen. Moses makes a request here, which is uh, very strange because we think, hasn't he already seen God's glory? And doesn't he always not already know that God's with him? He saw God's manifest glory in the bush, the burning bush. He saw it in the, the fire and the pillar of smoke that would lead them throughout the desert. He's seen it when he went up with the elders onto Mount Sinai and, and they saw the bottom parts of God's feet who was sitting on a throne. They, they've seen it in the glory cloud of Shekinah that would come down on the tent of meeting. In what sense now is Moses asking to see God's glory and what he's asking for, what he's requesting is a, is a final signed confirmation that everything he'd asked for in the text last week that we read would be true and that he would have a taste of it. See, Moses had been asking, Lord, Lord, don't send Israel into the promised land without you. Come in our midst. Come with us. Let us see and behold and taste and experience your glory in our midst. And Lord, as you've just agreed to do that in verse 17, now I'm requesting in verse 18, can I have a glimpse Can I have a glimpse that is more, and this seems to be the sense of Moses, can I not just see a display, but have something informative? Can I understand you more deeply so that I can more accurately and fairly lead the people to glorify? I want to know you more accurately. This seems to be what Moses is saying to God and dares to ask, show me your glory. God says to him, I'll show you my goodness. And some people make a whole big deal about this, about how he won't show glory, instead he'll show goodness, as if there's some kind of contradiction. But that doesn't make sense, because a few verses later, God does say, my glory will pass by. So how do we relate the goodness of God and the glory of God? Of course, we understand, and we've been looking at this sort of tension in Exodus that God has in himself for all of eternity, before he created, before he was seen or ever worshipped by an angel or a human, he has in himself what we will call intrinsic glory. He simply is eternally, infinitely perfect and marvelous, uh, maximally. He has that glory in himself. But then in history, he sort of breaks through into the world and gives a manifestation that kind of communicates his glory. And so by glory here, when Moses said, let me see your glory, just as he'd seen displays of God's glory and presence before, what he's asking is for a a visible manifestation of God's majestic presence. That's, That's what he wants to see. That's what Exodus shows us in these snapshots of God's glory. A visible manifestation of God's majestic presence. When God says his goodness, again, this is not contrary to his glory. It is not less than his glory, but it is his glory displayed through a certain lens. The goodness of God is all of the perfections and glory of God in a way that they benefit us. So so the goodness of God is how those parts of God's nature are beneficial towards us. So so when God says, I'll show you my goodness, he'll say, I'll show you my glory, but I'll be showing you my glory as it communicates how my glory is good for you, is beneficial to you, is loving towards you. Arthur Pink, a theologian, he calls the goodness of God the infinite 
an inexhaustible treasure of all blessedness. So not just how God is in himself, but how God is in himself relating to sinful man. That is his goodness, his loving graciousness. And that's what Moses will behold. Uh, Charles Hodge, a theologian, said this of the goodness of God. The love of a holy God to sinners is the most mysterious attribute of the divine nature. We get justice. We, we should at least logically. We get that he destroys the sinners. We get that he's separate from us. We get that he's angry at us. We get that he'll throw us into hell. That may be hard to swallow, but it's not that hard to comprehend. But the goodness of God is mysterious. How can this God be holy yet loving to sinners? Hodge continues on. The manifestation of this attribute of goodness... For the admiration and beatification of all intelligent creatures, human and angel, is declared by Scripture to be the special design of all redemption. That is, that God saves sinners, we are told, Ephesians 2 verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Hodge is saying, not that you need me to explain Hodge, I'm sure you got it, what Hodge is saying is that the goodness of God is what is on display in everything God does towards sinners in all of redemption. So that fast forward to eternity past in heaven, what the angels are singing about, what we are glorying in and praising God for is his goodness. Is not just that he is glorious, but that his glory has been manifested in such a way that sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. That is what God says to Moses, I will show you today. Well, if, okay, tomorrow morning after the sunrise. That's what I'll show you in, request to your, in response to your request to see my glory. I'll show you my, my gloriousness in my goodness, or what I'll just be calling his glorious goodness. But he does condition it, doesn't it? In verse 19 and also in verse 20, he says, I'm going to show it to you, Moses, but just as a caveat to remind you and everybody else that ever preaches on this chapter, I'm in complete, meticulous, precise, and exact control of how I reveal myself. I'm in charge of who I show myself to, so I'm choosing that you and you alone will see it. No animals can come on the mountain. No other people can come with you. No one's coming, just you. And God is saying here that, his self-revelation is, is within his own self-authorization. He's not simply going, he's saying here, in other words, I'm totally sovereign. This revelation of myself to you and my goodness, do you know what, Moses? It's not for everybody. I'm not doing this in Egypt. I'm not giving this to Pharaoh. I'm not doing this for the other Canaanite regions. I'm doing this for my covenant people, precisely their mediator Moses. In other words, God's sovereign. He's absolutely sovereign, and even though today he's condescending so far, he's just reminding Moses, I'm in total control of who can access me. God is sovereign. But he also conditions it further by saying, you cannot see my fullness. You won't see my face. He says face here. He means you won't look on me one to one. You won't see my fullness because no man can see me and live. So yes, there'll be a display of goodness, but then he sort of, he says, okay, but you'll be hidden in like a split rock and my hand will go over you. You won't look on my face. You'll, I'll go past and you'll sort of just see my, my, my back. It's like if you've ever, maybe you live in an old Queenslander or you go to your grandparents' house or you just have one of these antiques sitting in your roof, those really old, very yellow light bulbs and you turn it off, but for like the last minute, now if you're Gen Z, you don't know what I'm talking about. But for the last next like minute, it continues to like glow and slowly fade. Uh, it's like that. The, the afterglow of the filament of God's revelation of his glory, that's what Moses will get to see. And it will be plenty for Moses. But of course, just as an explainer, God says here about his face, he says he has a back, and he's going to be covering Moses with his hand. This is what we call in Scripture anthropomorphisms. Anthropos is the Greek word that means uh, man, humanity. 
and uh, 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 by anthropomorphism, uh, a morph is like a, a shape or a form. What, we're, what, what, what we mean by this word is that God often reveals himself to humans in a humanized way. He doesn't have an arm, and yet he tells Moses, I saved you by my outstretched arm. He doesn't have a finger, and yet he writes the Ten Commandments with his finger. He doesn't have a face, but he says to Moses, you can't look at my face. He doesn't have a hand, but he says, I will cover you with my head. He doesn't have a back. He doesn't have a, a spine and ribs and a torso and, and, and glutes. And yet we're told that we will see his, in the original his hindquarters, like the, the back part of God. We'll see his tail coat. But those things are just human words to explain a greater and a more glorious reality. But nonetheless... God limits this revelation. He will reveal his goodness, but it will be by God's choice he's in charge, and it will be limited lest Moses explode. So let's look at this glory in chapter 34. We get the, the prelude in verses like 1 to 4 about him going and cutting the stone, and we'll look at this in a few weeks when we talk about the renewal of the covenant and the law. But today our study is from verse 5 onwards. Moses went up, and then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Before we go any further, this has to be said, that as God, is, he got, God says these two parallel statements in Scripture right here, I will show you my glorious goodness, and then when Moses comes up, God proclaims his name. And it's not that we should hear him proclaim his name and then get to the end of verse 8 and go, where's the glory? The proclamation by God about God's own name and nature is the revelation of God. In other words, what Moses experiences as he goes up and he's put in the rock and he's hidden by God and, and the glow sort of starts to come through, whatever Moses is seeing the essence of the revelation of God's glory is that Yahweh gives an expository sermon. Isn't that amazing? God uses words to communicate truths about the attributes of God, and that is the revelation of God's glory. Do you know how many people want to come and experience God's glory? And they mean anything by that. They mean anything other than, I want to sit down, open a Bible, Look at the page and have a person explain and apply to me in the power of the Holy Spirit how this points to Jesus and how I might understand a book. That's so boring. That's so backward. It's antiquated. It's modern and, 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 and also too old. This is, just, this is just a humanistic sort of uh, easy to control, uh, a, a religious way of experiencing God's glory. No. A sermon from the beginning of the world. God's sermon literally created the world. The first, let there be light. The words of God have creating power. And as God speaks to Moses to reveal his glorious goodness, he does it through the form of a topical sermon on the attributes of God. I, I, I could count on one hand how many people I know who express that they're obsessed with the glory of God who love to experience the glory of God, who want to see the glory of God, who give a rip about expository sermons. I hope it's you. I mean, you're here. Maybe you got dragged here. But, but you're here, and we, we are committed to expository sermons that exegete and explain and apply the attributes of God. That is the fastest track to beholding God's glory is understanding in the mind the nature and the name of God. Do you understand that? When Moses is told here by God his name, when God proclaims, literally the same word for preaching, for extolling, for telling the name of God, when God is proclaiming his name and then he goes on to tell you a whole bunch of stuff about him, that really is the same thing. That in the ancient mindset, this is alive and well today in, in, in some, some ways, but in the ancient mindset, the name of somebody carried a, a, a lot of truth about them so that their name was not just the name they were given at birth, their name included their title. So their name and their title told you a lot about them. For example, if you were to be introduced to Darius I, 
you would be introduced as, uh, uh, to him as Darius the Great, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of mankind on earth and, all, and over all nations. Right? Far and wide. That, that's his name. Here we are, Persian Darius. Great King of Kings, King of Countries, containing all kinds of men, King in the great earth, far and wide, son of Hystaspes, something. It's Persian, I don't know. That, that's his name. Or you meet one of the emperors of the great Holy Roman Empire in, in, in uh, uh, centuries past, and they would tell you, I'm king of this, and king of Naples, and king of this, and king of France, king of Spain, empire. That's the name. The title of God is more than just, or the name of God is more than just Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, which in our English version is usually translated as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh. It's more than just Yahweh. It's all of those other attributes that he then goes and lists. And look at the marvelous attributes that God lists in his divine sermon on the attributes of God. Is that not is that just the best way to start out a year? God's own sermon in God's own word about his own nature. That, that's, the, that's the rock solid foundation you need for this year and every year is knowing God as he reveals himself in his glorious goodness. So look first, what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful. Oh, this rings with such sweetness in the ears of a sinner like Moses, and I pray you as well. This, this when, when God is about to proclaim his name, and when the hand covering him looks as, it's, as if it's about to explode with the imposing grandeur of God, and Moses is there exhausted with fear and anxiety that he may just be incinerated in milliseconds, and the first word out of God's mouth about himself is merciful. It's like a, a criminal arrested and charged and tried on, on the charges of treason. That he had tried to kill the king and reinstate an enemy king in his place. And he was caught. He was thrown in prison. He was dragged out onto the stage in front of many thousands looking on. And his head was thrown down onto the block. The executioner took his large, polished, sharpened blade and swung it high in the air. And as it came down at the three o'clock... The king yells, spare him! Mercy. That, that's how that word should land like a thud on the chopping block next to our head, having spared our life. Mercy. Mercy. This glorious God, the only God, is merciful. Before we can know anything about God and experience him at all, or be in any kind of relationship with him at all, you have to know. He is merciful to sinners. That's the beginning of our relationship with God, is understanding. He is righteous and we are not and we deserve death, but he is merciful. Or he goes on, merciful and gracious. That, that's even better. He's merciful in that he doesn't destroy us, but he's gracious in that he grants us favor and blessing against what we deserve. The king says, raise this traitor to his feet. Discharge the, the, the sentence of treason. Send him to his feet. Send him to my side. I will put a robe on him. He will be my prince. That's great. In a human level, foolish. Yeah, he's going to kill you. You've given him all the more motivation. But in the divine sense, grace. Because he doesn't just change our status. He changes our heart in grace. He makes us to love him. He gives us every blessing and favor that we could never deserve. In fact, that we did the opposite of deserving. Grace. He also says he is slow to anger. This has been the story of, the, of Exodus, isn't it? On every page, the people of Israel and Moses have given him ample reason to rush to anger. He doesn't do it. I mean, he gets angry, that that's, that's implicit in the phrase, slow to anger, is that he will eventually arrive there if you give him enough reason, but he's slow, he's patient, he's continually sending Moses back down the mountain, go, all right, go tell these people, here's how they can get out of this, go tell these people, here's how they can, go tell these people, this is why I'm not going to kill them, this is why I'm going to be patient, he's merciful and slow to his anger, 
He has a long wick and is not quickly led to explosive wrath, even though justice may demand that he could be. God is telling Moses, I'm just, I'm holy. I could destroy you in a moment, but I'm slow to anger. I know that I'm dealing with people of dirt who died in Adam and inherited corruption. I know the people that I saved, right? I love this phrase that says, uh, God saved you with his eyes wide open. He knows what filthy wretch he brought up out of the muck and mire and called his child. He's fully aware of your sin. You don't ever need to worry about, oh, should I tell God? Did, did he know this sin about me when he called me to himself? Did he know that I would fail in this way? Do I still have a right to go back to him? Yeah. yeah. He saw every element of your future. He saved you with his eyes wide open. He knows what he's dealing with. He knows your weakness. And he says to you, friend, every single one of us, by faith in Jesus, you are already forgiven. And I'm slow to anger with your unrighteousness. The fourth thing that he lists is that he is abounding overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. Your version might say covenant love and truth or, or covenant faithfulness and truthfulness or something of that. By, by this we see the interconnectedness of God's love and his covenant-keeping faithfulness. By faithfulness, the Bible means that, that he upholds every promise he's ever made. He never breaks a promise. And so Moses is being told here that God will uphold his covenant promises like the ones he made to Abraham to love the Israelites and forgive them. He is faithful to all of his promises, but he's also abounding in love. But it's a specific kind of love. It's not capricious love. And it's not just when he wakes up in the morning and feels like it. It's an ever-constant, covenanted Oathed, promised, sealed, contracted love. Covenant love and covenant faithfulness. God loves us because he has covenanted to do so in his son. And God covenanted to love us in his son because he loved us. And now in the example of the Israelites, God has covenanted to be kind to them, so he will be, but he did so because he loved them. And he loves them because he's covenanted too. And so this, we see the perfect and unending love of God. Love and faithfulness continue to go even to the next generation. They don't run out just because, well, God, God fulfilled all his promises to our parents. What's left for us? He has an unending bank account of inheritance to continue to pour out upon us. So every, to thousands of generations. He says this, the fifth attribute of God that he describes is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Any kind of mess up, any kind of rebellion, all of it. But they do have kind of distinct, distinct wordings. Iniquity seems to uh, uh, denote the, the turning aside. You know, you're calling an animal or or maybe a child, or, or maybe a car on a highway does this. They, they veer to the left or to the right, and in the Bible, that's a sign of, of sin. You, you were called to go the straight way, and you went off to the left or the right. Transgression has the idea of going too far. God said, go no further, and we step over in rebellion. And sin has the meaning of falling short. We aimed at a target and fell short. We didn't have enough moral robustness to reach the target. And so God says this, you veer to the left and the right. You transgress by going too far and you fail by not meeting the standard enough. So whether it's forward, back, up, down, left or right, my grace covers your sinfulness. You're sinful by nature because of corruption and you're sinful by choice because you love to rebel. You're sinful in Adam because he fell and all of us in him. And you're sinful by decision because you agree with him every day and throw away the law of God. But God is forgiving of transgression, sin, iniquity, all of them. And then his sixth is this. The glorious goodness of God has been revealed to us in his mercy, his graciousness, his slowness to anger, his abounding covenant love and faithfulness, his forgiving of iniquity, sin, and rebellion, and that he will by no means clear the guilty. 
And at this point, the whole, the whole parade of God's mercy just grinds to a halt. And Moses is, is thinking and wondering and, 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 and balking in awe. God is all of these things, but he will never, by any means, so don't even try to think up one. There is by no means any way that God will ever look at somebody who by the law of God has sin, iniquity, and rebellion on their account and ever say, in your sin, clothed in rebellion, hating of me, come on into heaven. You're fit to be in my presence. I have such low standards. Never. God will never do that, and he doesn't do that. He could not do that. He would hate to do that. God doesn't clear the guilty. And, and this, this dilemma, we could call it, you might want to call it a contradiction, what we've looked at so far, that, that, that God said he's so gracious and forgiving, but he'll never clear a guilty person. We say, who is there to forgive except for a guilty person? And you might feel like this is a contradiction, but it's not. It, it's a paradox. It's the dilemma that lays at the heart of all of Scripture, is this question. How can a righteous and holy God dwell with unrighteous and unholy people? How can a just God forgive unjust sinners? How? He says he does it, but my goodness, he's left a, a gaping hole in the explanation of how he does it. If you were to go to say, New York's Museum of Natural History or, or something in Britain, I don't know what theirs is called, or Buckingham Palace or something, and, and you're being taken on this marvelous tour through the history and glories of the empire, and they're telling you, wait till the best part. The best part is the greatest throne and the greatest crown that the world has ever seen, and, and you're waiting for that because it's like the zenith of the tour. And you're waiting there and you've got your little Kodak ready and you've got your selfie stick. You cannot wait. And then they open this glorious door and in front of you is this bland, empty platform where it's meant to be. And you wonder, where is it? And it's got the plaque, right? It says, the most glorious thing you've ever seen in our empire. And, and you know, this is the point of the tour it's at the heart of the empire. It's like the sign of the glory of this whole nation. And where is it? And that is what the Bible is like for 1,500 years after Moses until the coming of Jesus. On one side of this empty platform hangs, God is forgiving and gracious and merciful. And on the other side of the platform hangs, God will by no means clear the guilty. And on this bare platform, there's meant to be a solution. And it's empty. Until Jesus comes and takes the throne right in the middle of this crux, this cross, this, this center of the whole point of Scripture. And he becomes the answer to the question, how can a righteous God forgive sinners without clearing guilty people? And the answer is that he takes guilty people he puts their guilt in Jesus, kills Jesus for their guilt, gives to those formerly guilty people a perfect righteousness lived by Jesus, and then God looks at these formerly guilty sinners, sees that they are now righteous, and then forgives, is merciful to them, is gracious to them, and brings them into his presence. God doesn't clear the guilty. He justifies the guilty and then clears their name. Jesus is the point. And I just want you to see this. That the cross of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus dying for our sins, is not some afterthought 1,500 years after everything else. The cross of Jesus is not some uh, tangential sort of uh, 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 post word at the end of the book, you know, like the last 27 books of the New Testament. But, but the first 39, they really had nothing to do with this. Look at how central this is. Moses goes to the very presence of God and says, show me your glory. God says, I will show you my glorious goodness. God's gl display of his glorious goodness is a description of his attributes. And right in the middle of God's own description of his own attributes, there is a gaping hole that demands the cross of Jesus Christ. This means you cannot even begin 
to understand the glory of God, behold his glorious goodness, know or experience God or make sense of any of his attributes, much less have a relationship with him without understanding the cross of Jesus Christ where God's justice is satisfied and God's grace pours out. The cross of Jesus stands at the center, the climax, the, the, the apex of God's self-revelation of his glory. The cross of Jesus stands at the apex, climax, and center of God's revelation of his glory. And that's what we find in the New Testament. Can you please turn to John chapter 1? God's sermon comes to an end on quite a cliffhanger, doesn't it? He just leaves them with that. I won't clear the guilty. John chapter 1 tells us, if we look in verse 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, In verse 1 and, and following, John is presenting God the Son as the Word. The, the Logos in the Greek, but the Word. That is, the Son is to the Father what a Word is to an idea. Right, so I'm making an analogy here, sort of try and run with me in this sort of uh, 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 conceptual way of thinking. The Son is to the Father what a word written down is to an idea. If there is a truthful, logical concept, it can be communicated through a written word. right? And if not, then it's not a coherent or true idea. Does that make sense? That all true, ordered logic can be communicated and must be communicated through a word. And then if you want it communicated further, then it must be spoken through breath. And this is kind of a, an analogy for the trinity of who God is, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal. And yet John is saying to us, the concept, the idea, not that God is just an idea, but, but in this analogy, the idea of God, non-tangible and infinite, is codified and understood and communicated through the Word of God the Son. And then further, that Word, the Holy Spirit comes and breathes through to communicate it to us further. And so what John is doing here, all of that to explain, John's calling God the Son the Word, the Logos, the thing that communicates the truth of God to creation. And he says this in verse 14, that word, God the Son, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. What John is saying here is that the Son, in the Son there was glory. Look at the next part of the verse. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. What this is saying is that whatever the Father has, the Son has, because they're co-equal, they're co-eternal. It's not as if God had multiple sons, and so one son might have one-fifth of his glory. No, he is the only Son from the Father, begotten before all ages in all eternity. Therefore, they share in the same nature, which means Jesus' glory, the Son's glory, is the Father's glory. And the Father's glory is the Son's glory. And this Son, the Word, became flesh, incarnated, literally means into meat, right? Inca uh, in, we know that comes into English exactly, carne, this is what your, your friends, the New Year's resolution, the carnivore diet that they're all trying to do, right? Uh, the carne means meat. If you're a carnivore, you devour meat only. Incarnation is God, the, the idea, the concept, the eternal logical reality infleshed into a human with a mind, thoughts, a soul, a body. He's been infleshed. And in that infleshation, that incarnation, we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. The glory that Moses wanted to see, friends 
was put on display in Jesus. He says, we have seen this glory. So that word, Jesus, the God the Son, made that glory seeable somehow. And he says that it is full of grace and truth. We saw the glory. It wasn't held back. It was the self-same glory. But it was full of grace and full of truth. So what we saw was this graciousness, this goodness, this undeserved blessedness towards us, where he graciously let us see his glory. And when we did, we just saw more and more grace. But also, yet, he says, it is full of truth. That in Jesus coming to display God's glory, he didn't leave some important parts behind because we couldn't handle it. He didn't fail to communicate certain parts of God's attributes because they were too intense. No, hear this. The incarnation means that the full display of God's attributes was in Jesus. It was full of grace and full of truth, accuracy, divine reality, God. And we might be led to ask, okay, well, what rock did Jesus hide people in? What rock did Jesus, did he walk around with a large stone to always veil people with it? Because when Moses saw the glory of God, God hid him in a rock and covered him with his hand so that he not be incinerated. What rock did Jesus hide people in so they could see his glory and not die? Friends, Jesus is both the revelation of glory and he is himself the rock we hide in. He is, in an unimaginable way, both the veiling of God and the communication of God. He is where God's full glory can be beheld and yet sinners be safe to approach because of God's mercy and grace in Jesus. He is truth and grace. He is the radiance of God's glory and he is the rock that saves us. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Did you know this is, the fr- this is the story that that song refers to? Rock of all ages, cleft for me, divided, wounded, splintered, sliced in two for me, open for me, so that I might be hid within you from God's overwhelming power, justice, and glory. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed Be of sin the double cure. Save from guilt and make me pure. This is a well-written hymn. Look at verse 16 and 17 in John 1. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you know what what is true of Jesus? A full, gracious, accurate revelation of God's glory. Look at verse 18. And you can tell that he's comparing this with Moses. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Moses was told that by God. You can't see me and live. It's impossible. You'll see manifestations. You'll see bright, radiant displays. You'll see, you'll see uh, uh, explosions of lightning and thunder and fire and whatnot. Moses, you haven't ever seen God. No one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side, so the Son, who is God, at the Father's side, the Word, the Logos, the Son of God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. In preaching, I used one fancy word before, expositional, meaning we uh, we take the meaning and, and put it out of, we sort of expose the meaning of the words. This is expository preaching. Another word that has been used often since the Reformation is exegesis. The word exegete or exegetical, right, an exegetical sermon, it, it means to interpret and explain. So, so somebody stands up and they read a verse and go, here's what this means to me, and they tell you how God gave them a car and healed their kid and stuff. Not preaching, not a pastor, probably not a Christian, that, that's separate, not exegesis. Not taking a text and explaining and applying. 
This is what that word exegesis means. Taking a word and accurately, faithfully, fully, and truthfully showing to you what it means. The word exegesis in the original Greek is exogeomai. Let me read this verse 18 again. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has exegeted the Father. It's the literal meaning of that word. What, what in the English comes out is has made him known. The Greek word under that is exegetes. What we can never see, Jesus literally comes down and is the embodied sermon of God. Moses heard a sermon from God to know his attributes, but in Jesus there is the perfect, fuller, more gracious, more glorious, living, breathing sermon about God's attributes put on display for us to behold. So, so what John is saying is that there is something enormous about what Moses beheld on the mountain, there is something about that that is vastly lacking in glory. We, we might say, doesn't the shining that Moses saw, the cloud, the explosion, the light, doesn't that seem more glorious though? Wouldn't we expect a fuller revelation of God's glory to be more brilliant in explosive radiance? Because the medieval painters were wrong. Jesus didn't have a white shining face and a little halo. Would have been a dead giveaway. Not what happened. Uh, Jesus did not walk around floating in radiant. I mean, it happened once, right, up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, he was shown to be in radiant glory, but that wasn't his every day. That was like one 10-minute period out of a 33-year life. That's less than 99.99% of his life. And that was just to give the, a few of the apostles uh, a glimpse and a confirmation that he was the glory of God. But the way that John is talking about it in John 1 is to say his whole life from conception to resurrection is the description, the explanation, the display of God's glory that far outshines what Moses saw. Far out. In fact, all of the light shows... They were trying to communicate something about God's glory and radiance and all of that, but were able to do so in a lesser degree than what Jesus was able to do so, sitting at a meal with sinners, healing the lame and the blind and the deaf, talking to unrighteous people about the kingdom of God, being a good friend to whoever he grew up with, helping his mum out with the chores, building in his job as a carpenter, preaching and teaching to the people of the gospel of the kingdom of God and of forgiveness in his blood. As Jesus did these things, do not think Moses got the full lot, we get an incarnated lot. Think in Jesus, there was a more accurate revelation of each of the attributes of God as they relate to one another than had ever been seen before. Jesus is the fuller revelation of God's glory. He was more accurate at displaying the interrelations of God's attributes. In Jesus is also the answer to the mystery of God's name and glory. In him is the answer to the supposed contradiction from Exodus 34. When God said, I'm forgiving, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger. I'm steadfast and abounding in covenant love and faithfulness, but I'm never, ever going to let a guilty person go unpunished. The answer is in Jesus. At the crux of God's revelation of himself is his glorious goodness. At the crux of that is a sermon about his attributes. At the crux of that, those attributes, is the demand for an atonement for sinners. And in that crux, in that crosshairs stands Jesus Christ with his arms outstretched making atonement for sinners so that we may be justified by God's law in a just way so that God can be as Romans 3 says both just and the justifier of sinners who have faith in Jesus forgiving iniquity transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty is answered by 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Moses' response needs to be our response. Fall down in worship. Behold your God. And if you know that you're a sinner that is not in right relationship with God, then ask what Moses asked. Forgive our iniquity. Pardon our sin. Forgive me, O holy, glorious God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this glorious, chief, most wonderful, ultimate consideration that is just, uh, put on display in Moses and more so in Jesus, in what Moses saw on the mountain and what the disciples saw in their everyday. What we read in Exodus and what we read in the Gospels, they are the same glory but in completely different degrees. And Lord, it is so good for our hearts to consider what you showed, what you spoke, what you told us about your glorious goodness. And we ask, as Moses asked, but with even more confidence and with even more faith, since your glory is put on display in the cross of Jesus, where you forgive sinners, please, Lord God, show us your glory. Show us to a deeper degree, more than we've ever understood, that you graciously love to forgive the guilty because in Christ you have paid for all of our sin. Give us, Lord God, a deeper revelation of this truth, a deeper understanding to our hearts where it has maybe only ever been head knowledge before. Please save those who have known this but never cherished it and never truly trusted it. Please save those who did not know this truth beforehand but who now know that they can and must be forgiven only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord God, Moses' prayer is also our prayer as a church. Please, in this new year, in 2024, would you go in the midst of us to the unknown where the trials are awaiting us and there is much turmoil or upheaval. Please, Lord God, sustain us, go with us and be in our midst. And where there is victory to be had, and fruit to be born, and souls to be saved, and churches to plant, where all of this stands waiting for us, Lord God, fulfill in us the good works that you decreed from before the foundations of the world. Go in our midst and make us fruitful and faithful and obedient, all to the everlasting, wonderful, eternal, and deserved glory of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.